millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On the Sporting Couch with Gary Bloom. Hello, I'm Gary Bloom. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch. I'm a psychotherapist, counsellor and broadcaster, and that means I work one-to-one with all sorts of people who are having or have experienced problems in their day-to-day lives. It's sometimes called a talking therapy. It doesn't mean the individual is ill, but the sessions give people the opportunity to talk about the things that are really affecting them and gives them a chance to get things off their chest. I treat people suffering from anxiety, depression, addictive behaviours and relationship issues. All of us will know someone going through a tough time and hopefully this series will encourage anyone who feels like they need to get help finding a counsellor or therapist to find one. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website and we'll give you these at the end of the show. And hopefully this programme will give a greater understanding of what goes on between therapist and the sportsperson who today is on the sporting couch. Meet Catherine Merry, one of the most prized 400 metres runners of her generation. She won bronze at the 2000 Sydney Olympics behind Australian Cathy Freeman and in 2001 was the fastest woman in the world over her distance. She was the star of the track at a very early age. Some of her junior records still stand, but her astonishing achievements came to a disappointing finish when her career ended in 2002 with a series of injuries which took her into a path of depression. Since then, she's forged a highly successful TV career as a pundit, presenter and commentator. Welcome to On the Sporting Couch with me, Gary Bloom, and Kath Merry, who told me that being a sprinter has completely shaped her life and injury was a launch pad for her new career. I'm going to start with something that I'd like you to explain to me. And you say, um, sprinting has shaped my life. What does it mean? I think it's um, realised, I could say just sport, to be honest, has, has shaped my life. And what I mean by that is that everything I do now is a direct result of athletics in terms of what I do work-wise Um, how I live my life in terms of the skills and the disciplines that sport taught me. Because I started so young, at about nine years old, a very influential age to be shaped, of course, through those informative years. And everything I've done has come from what I learned from athletics in terms of 
everything really, everything, every, everything in my life that accumulated and boiled down to one race. So I'm very, very aware that my life would have been completely different. I'd still have the same skills and disciplines that athletics taught me, but my life would be totally different if I hadn't ran 49.72 seconds at the end of September in Sydney in my Olympic final because I won an individual Olympic medal. My whole life has been shaped around that one race. We'll go back to that race later, but I'm going to pick up what you said before about starting at nine years old. In retrospect, was that too young? No, not at all. I'd have started sooner if I could remember that far back. I wish <laughs> I would have been able to. No, it wasn't. It's, it's the kind of age when you get involved in sport, isn't it? You know, I've got two small children who have no interest in any sport, and that's fine. And people are like, well, you know, your son's six now. Is he showing any skills in anything? No, he's six. And I can't remember showing any interest in sport before athletics and a little bit of gymnastics. So, no, it wasn't. It wasn't too young at all. It was what I enjoyed doing. It was what I was good at at school. My father was an English school triple jump medalist, so he had he was still doing athletics in terms of veterans then. It's called Masters now. So, no, I, didn't, I don't think it was too young, too young at all. Um, looking back, having to retire through injury and having been so quick and so good when I was young... That was potentially detrimental to the longevity of my career. But you go with the flow. Do you know what I mean, if you are good at something and you enjoy doing something, then you've got no chance at 9, 10, 15 or 16 saying, let's just hold back a few years here and let get, so you have a long career. You won't even have a career at all. Mm. So no, definitely not. Definitely didn't look back and think, oh, wish I'd have started a bit later so I didn't have to retire falling apart so young. Were you a happy child? Very much, very much. Um, absolutely loved it. Born in a little village called Dunchurch with about 3,000 population, I think, on the last census. Um, a farm, a post office, uh, one form in every year at school, four classes in my first, you know, four classes totally in the school at my first school, down a hill to the middle school. Absolutely loved it. Walked to school, um, which was a fair distance of that age when your legs are that short. It took a fair while, but I loved it. I loved everything about it, the environment, the school setup, the friends that I have. I've got very, very fond memories of, of my school life throughout, you know, the sleepy village of Dunchurch and rugby in Warwickshire. Yeah, very much so. So do you think that happiness contributed to your sporting success as a young person? I'd like to think so because and as I've got older and had subsequent coaches who have always nailed the fact and said, you need to make sure that your life is um, in a good way off the track because there is a correlation. And I didn't think of that at the time. Um, looking back, I think it would have done. But for me, it's more not so much the happiness that I think contributed to me enjoying the sport and then being successful from a young age. It was the support system. Very, very aware of the fact that I had parents who would drive me to the track. I had parents who, who would go out of their way and make an effort. And I'm fully aware there's children that don't have that. So I look back and think I was really lucky. But at the time, you don't realise that because you're just doing what you're doing. But yeah, of course it did. I think it was, it was, a, it was a massive part of, of um, contributing to what I did at a young age. You have one brother, John. Mm -hmm. What was your relationship like with him? It was really good until I started running faster than him. Then it kind of went a bit downhill. He was, um, no, it's great. It not always has been. He's two years older and it was, I think he was sick of me in terms of my athletics by the age of about 14 or 15 
because I started so young and because internationally I started at 13 and I had a lot of attention um, and he isn't sport orientated. He likes it. He watched it. You know, he, he does. He, he tried to do athletics, didn't last very long, but he wouldn't when your younger sister runs faster or is better than you. He went into golf. He went into go-karting. We always had a really good relationship. There was never any bitterness, any rivalry from that point of view. Um, if you ask him, he might say something different. He might say, oh, God, I was sick of all this running lark and my parents were being pulled left, right and centre because of Kath running and all that kind of stuff. But I'd be surprised if that was the case. We've, we've got a good relationship. It's just a shame that he's my only brother and he doesn't live here in this mm. country anymore. He's based in Madrid with his wife and my two nephews. And so that's a shame. We've always got on, though. We've always, we've always got on OK. In these situations, parents often have to make sacrifices if they have children who are exceptional in their sport. Did your parents have to make sacrifices? They probably did, to be honest. It was a bit strange for me, though, because, like I say, my, my father, my dad was was running at the same time. You know, we'd go to Cosford in Staffordshire, the old aircraft hangar that used to have the track in there, and he'd be running there one weekend in, in veteran athletics, and I'd be there the next weekend for some junior races. So it's kind of like... And we go to Rugby Athletics Club two, three times a week because that they ingratiate themselves in that. So I think, actually, would they, did they actually make any sacrifices, really? Because oh, was I kind of incorporating and then fitting into what they were kind of doing anyway? That's one way I look at it. But then you look further than that and then the wider picture of, of course they did. Because I was then training from 13 or 14 mm. in the West Midlands. And I was dry, having to be driven to Solihull at that age. And they had to sit, they had to wait. And they had to make sacrifices. So, yes, they did. Yeah, they very they very much did, which I'm greatly appreciative of, of course. Um, and in my world, it's like, well, that's what parents do. But now older and wiser and a parent myself, not all parents do that. So, of course, they were supportive in that in that respect. So your relationship with your parents, what's that like? There's no, there isn't really one anymore. It's pretty non-existent, which is um, pretty sad. I think if you if you speak to my parents, they they feel I think that they lost me to athletics and athletics encapsulated my life um, and took over my life. And from the age of 18, 19 or whatever it was, I was kind of up and running myself and I was independent and I was able to drive myself. Um, and I think that was potentially then detrimental to the relationships. I'm very independent and I'm very self-sufficient. I've always prided myself on being like that. Um, so no, it's it's not a relationship that that has any real substance anymore because I went through my life, grew up, and made decisions that that they didn't agree with in one area or the other, mm. and so it's come to the point of well, I'm 43 years old now, and I'm a mother with two children myself, and and you have to get on with life, and if you make decisions that they don't like then the consequences are, are pretty severe because I've got my own stuff to do. And that's sad. That's, it's, it's really sad when something like that is out of your control and you're leading your life in a certain way that they don't like. That's, and then it's one, one or the other. And I chose the other because I'm a big grown woman and I'll do what I want to do and that they don't like some of the decisions I've made. Bearing in mind our chat the other day, um, you talked about your personality altering and you said I'm becoming less tolerant as I get older. And I'm wondering if this kind of fits together with this sense of I'm not putting up with nonsense anymore. That has been nonsense I've had to put up with in my life. But you know what? As I get older, I will not put up with that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and 
I think you used it as a maturity word rather than a less tolerant word. You were talking the other day, Gary. Yeah, very much so. I think you can you can accept situations and you you try and appease and you try and be nice and you try and you know whatever you have to do, you do. And then you do get to a point when I had children, isn't it that moment when you just think, oh no, just forget this. And I have got a less, lot less tolerant with everything in life. And I'm talking just with people. I'm not talking specifically, people in general. Um, Do you think that's a reaction to what's happened with mum and dad? I don't think so. No, I think it's, um, I think it's, I don't know. I just think it's a reaction to being and getting older and having priorities shifting. Because my life has, has, has had a, has encompassed so many different like kind of priorities and selfishness. Individual athletes, not teammates, individual athletes, inherently selfish, apparently we are. Because we have to be, because it's all about us, it's about the performance. And then sharing that world and changing and having different priorities it change you, I think, in my opinion, as a person. And no, I just think I've just got older and I just, like I say, I, I just, I don't think there's, I wouldn't think there was any reason for it. I just think that's the way that I've become. But talking to somebody like yourself will say, well, I think that would have been shaped by whether it be family or whether it be the sport that you did for so long. But the tolerance of, of people and what I accepted and went through in my career was alongside any other stuff that I was going through in, 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 at the time. No, I did, you know, I accepted a lot of things when I went through my career that I wouldn't accept now and blatantly wouldn't accept now. I wonder whether it just fuels it. Now, I, I... I think of it in therapeutic terms that if I have to put up with this major issue in my life, my tolerance for other stuff is reduced. I think maybe that's how it might work for you. Maybe. But then the other the other tolerance levels that I've had to perform over the years have been a consistent drip-fed tolerance, whereas all of a sudden now... Uh, I just can't be dealing with people. I just, isn't it weird? I just haven't. Where would I smile a lot more? And I will smile and still be nice to people. But I've just, I just won't invest as much of my time into things and situations. And it is frustrating because I look back and I think the amount of times I should have done that in my career, in my athletic career, I wish I had. You're listening to On The Sporting Couch, a programme about good mental health in sport. And my guest is former Olympic sprinter Catherine Merrick. Subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app and never miss an episode. Welcome back to On The Sporting Couch, a programme about mental health in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, and with me in the studio is Catherine Merritt. Taking you back to a teenage girl, and you talked about being bullied by members of the GB team. Yeah, it wasn't girl, it was plural. Yeah, there was more than one. Yeah, so issues like that, for instance, when you're blonde-haired, white, middle-class, and you're beating everybody else in the country in an event that white people aren't supposed to be particularly great at um, in terms of sprinting, then that comes with, that comes with a, a reaction. And remember, and remember for the, till the day that I die, the, 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 the abuse that I um, encountered from members of the team because I was not the stereotypical sprinter. And 
being accused of having the focus, having the attention, having the sponsorship, having the interest because of the way that I was in terms of a white blonde haired sprinter in a in a in a in a black dominated sprinting event. So you're bullied by hard. black young women. Yeah. From for, yeah. Because they didn't like and didn't accept it and now older, purely of course, born out of jealousy. I knew that at the time it was born out of jealousy, but it still doesn't mean it hurts. But then was helped out and, and protected by other members of the team. Did they protect you? Did the senior management of the team protect you from that sort of bullying? I don't think it was really well known. It, it wasn't well known. I just got on with it. It was surprising. I just kind of, oh, God, here we go. Just kind of got on with it. Did they protect me from it? No, because people like that are very, are very subtle in the way that they do things. You know, you're not coming into a dinner hall in a major championships and walking over and throwing me porridge on the floor and basically rubbing me face in it, kind of bullying. Do you know what I mean? It's that, it's that underhand, the, 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 the snidey remarks. It's the underhand kind of general intimidation that collectively a pack collectively can create but it doesn't have to be straight out in your face giving it some welly do you know what I mean? but if you one day were part of the gb management team of mm -hmm. athletics and you saw that going on how would you react i'd react in a completely different way but then it's how it presents itself, isn't it? That's what I mean. You so you, you, you're, let, let's just pretend you see this low-grade bully, which is what mm -hmm. you just described mm -hmm. very accurately. Would you interrupt it or would you say, you know what, it, the, the, you have to grow up and deal with that sort of stuff? No, of course not. That's not my nature anyway. You know, I'd be straight in there telling them about themselves because it's unacceptable. But ultimately, you put, I'd have put the athlete first, obviously, in terms of reviewing and looking at the situation. But no, it wouldn't have been accepted to me at all. How much were they aware of? Not even quite sure. Did it even cross my mind to pass that stuff on and re not report, but you know what I'm saying? I Interrupt it. I wouldn't have even thought back in the day. God, would I, would I have even thought of saying to somebody, I'm in a bit of trouble here, or I don't like the way I'm being treated? Knowing me, I probably wouldn't because I'd just get on with things. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't even know whether it would have crossed my mind to actually say... Because is that a form of weakness? Am I going to get myself in more trouble? You know, when you're 13, 14, 15 or whatever years old, you just kind of keep your head down. It's like the school, sports like for me, it was like the school environment, but just with a few more bigger sharks and an environment that I wasn't as comfortable in, in terms of knowing how, the, how, the, how to play things out. But the fact that I had to be looked at, well, one lady in particular on the team was brilliant and, and she looked after me and she was a black athlete from London. So it was a kind of... Well, they're not all bullying and collectively getting on top of me and all that kind of stuff. But and I didn't say anything and you just get on with it because ultimately I was running faster. That, that was my response. Well, I'm not getting all these things because you say this, this and this. I'm actually winning races and running faster than any other person in Britain at the age so of 18. Did it spur you on? Definitely. You can speak to probably as you have many sports people that would say if they have something that, that they um, have that's negative and they see as a negative, that it fuels the fire. And my whole career was based on that, whether it be from potentially the, the, the family angle of wanting to prove myself to actually, I'm quite good at something, do you know what I mean? I am, to the, the bullying of like, okay, you, I was beating you by a tenth of a second before, now I'm going to beat you by two tenths of a second. And so, there was, that's always been in me, but and it's never normally verbalised because I'm not kind of like that to people, but if you get me going, then it will have been, it spurred me, of course it spurred me on, definitely. So are you a woman who will stick your fingers up at the world and say, I will show you. Definitely, yeah. 
definitely. My my whole career was kind of like that in an athletic sense rather than a potentially social kind of sense. It probably many times wanted to be like that, but no, I just, I will, I, I spent my whole career because I was injured a lot as well. So every time I got an injury and I came back from that after being told and ridiculed by athletics press or by people in the sport that, oh, you're not coming back from that. Yeah, you were great as a youngster. Yes, you ran really quick as a kid, but you're not going to translate that into a senior athlete because very few do. No one has the journey that I had and did it the way that I did it. But I did get back. And so, yeah, that, it, was, it was fueled by sticking two fingers up and saying, yeah, just give me a chance, an opportunity. I'm there. If I stay healthy, everybody in, in, in athletics, in my opinion, would have been in trouble. I never ran as fast as I know I could have done. And that was fueled by injuries and anger and collectively other other little pieces of the ingredients of the cake. But it's almost as if you, all your life, you said, I'll prove you wrong. I'm going to do this mm. and I'll prove you wrong. I will make a life for myself with this person. I will make a success of my career. doesn't matter what you say. I think that's still there here today. Totally agree. I think the whole of everything I do is totally driven throughout dotted in periods of time of my life where people have said... You're not going to do this. You can't do this. You won't be doing that. And that's the same now with the career that I have now and in the industry that I work in now. And that is needed, in my opinion. Would you go back and change that or was that bullying instrumental in making you a better runner? It's a, that's an interesting question because you'd instantaneously say, of course I'd go back and change it. I wouldn't want anything like that. I wouldn't want any any young person to go through the feelings that that brought, do you know what I mean? Not so much potentially the actions of it, it's the feelings and the emotions that it brings. But then it shaped and made me become an athlete that I probably was. So it's, that's a very hard question to answer um, because I'm not quite sure. It's, it's it, a bit of both, isn't it? Would I have still been the same athlete without it? Yes, I think I would. So if I looked at it that way, because I had fuel and fires from a lot of different areas, so I could have done without that one. <laughs> so looking back and answering your question, on balance, yeah, probably I'd like it not to have happened. Even though it was there and it was instrumental, I think I had enough things and points to prove and fuel in my fire. I could have done without that one. You know what the worst thing is as well with it, Gary? I still, I still see these people. I still interact with them in terms of my life because, you know, sport's a very small place. Athletics is a very small place. And, 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 it, and it is one of them when you know them and you have to either interact with them in some shape or form to whatever level. It's never done with full acceptance and it's always done with, OK, we're, we're, we're at that stage of our lives now. I, I don't forget anything. What stops you going up to them and saying, you know what, when I was 13 years old, you did something that really crossed the line for me? Can't be bothered. <laughs> Genuinely, I can't. What the, what's the point in that? It might make you feel better. It won't. It won't. And lay fine. one or two ghosts that I think you, you bury. No, can't be bothered. I haven't I got time bury, for that. I think you bury so <laughs> many ghosts. I probably do. But then genuinely on this one, you see the difference though. You ask me about my family, like, I'd open door any time of the day. It's 365 days a year. What the hell have I got? I can't be wasting my time doing that. They did what they did. They probably know in themselves that they probably weren't particularly nice. They're probably parents now as well. What? No, I can't be bothered with that. And I'm doing all right. You see, that's the difference. I'm doing okay. And, and I'm, I, I interact and I see these people in an environment where I'm, I'm 
Sorry, I, I can't really talk and chat because I've got to infield host the biggest meeting in the world. Or and go that's, and, there you go. Where so you, I can't be bothered. That's where, there's where you stick your fingers up. That's why I can't be bothered. That's what I'm saying. My work speaks for itself. So, I, no, I'm, I'm doing all right, thank you very much. And I'll never forget that you're an idiot. I just can't be bothered to pull you up on it because I've got more important things to do. <laughs> in the midst of all this, um, this tension between black and white athletes in the sprint team, you meet Linford Christie who is to be a major, major influence on your life. Tell me about that. A huge influence. Re he really is. It's funny because when you say Linford's name, it's, he's one of those people, everybody has an opinion on him and everybody's opinion, in my, in my, in my view, is, is valid. might not be accurate. might not be an opinion that you agree with. Everyone's entitled to one. If you give an opinion, you just have to say it and suffer the consequences of that opinion. That's my, I, I listen to anything and anybody. And people, when you say Linford's name, have an opinion on him, whether they know him or not. Because What's your opinion of him? He's a wonderful, wonderful, soft-hearted, 57-year-old, going-on-18-type kind of guy. Genuinely. He's a, he's a good guy. Feels like you're defending him at some level. I ha I've spent my life defending Linford. Why? Because if you, talk to, if you talk to people about Linford, oh, yeah, Linford, yeah. Well, everyone thinks everybody in athletics cheats anyway. That's just standard nowadays, unfortunately, which they don't. And then if you talk to them, oh, yeah, that's the guy that, oh, yeah, at 1988, wasn't it? Was it Ginseng? Did he, get, did he fail a test in then? And then was it Nandrolone in 1999? So is this the guy that's failed to... You can, you can fail a test and it doesn't mean you're a cheat. Does that make sense? Yeah, everyone, you, can, you can fail it. It doesn't mean you're a cheater. So I always defend Linford because of the view that people have on him. Not everybody... Because if you know him and you know his personality and his kind-hearted nature and, and what he continues to do in the sport, which many people don't in terms of coaching athletes, then, yeah, I do defend him. And I'm very, I, I'm very loyal as a person. And there's two or three people in the world that I will defend but listen to and accept people's views on of stories that they may have had encounters with him, which wouldn't have been good. Like, oh, you know, it did happen, Kath. It did happen. He did say that to me. Yeah, I'm sure he did. <laughs> I know he would have. Because, but no, he's, he's massive. I first met him at 13. So I was 13 years old and he was the figurehead of a, um, a sprint campaign to find the fastest schoolgirl and schoolgirl in Britain. How old was Linford, Linford at that was, age when you were 13? Well, I'm, 30, I'm 43 now. He's 57, so 14. So what's that? He'd been late 20s. Mid late 20s. So it was before the big boom of the 92 Olympic gold or the 93 World Championship gold. He was the figurehead. I think it was about 1989. So he was doing good things, decent things. And I met him thinking he was going to be an absolute prat because he was, he was one of the fastest men in the world. Everybody that's fast and all that kind of stuff are, are kind of cocky. And, and he wasn't. He wasn't like that at all. Um, and he sat down and we spoke and I liked him and he was encouraging. And he said, one day I'd like to coach you, which obviously we went full circle in the early late 90s and early 2000s and it happened. And I walked away thinking not all sprinters are arrogant, not all sprinters are idiots, and not all sprinters have to be that big bullshit type character off the track. But put him on it, different animal, of course. And we've stayed friends ever since. And 30 years we've known each other. We've, we've continued to develop our relationship to a level that is, is just brilliant. Subscribe to this podcast on your podcast app and never miss an episode. And find more podcasts from TalkSport at TalkSport.com slash podcasts or by searching for TalkSport in the podcast store. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to On the Sporting Couch, a program about good mental health in sport. I'm psychotherapist Gary Bloom, and with me in the studio is former Olympic sprinter Catherine Merrick. Not an easy question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Was there an infatuation there from you to start with? No, not in any shape or form. Um, I'm, I'm saying in both senses, not only romantic, but also professional. Definitely not romantic because he is nearly old enough to be my dad, so that <laughs> would just be wrong. But no, in, so no, in that respect, not at all. Um, Professionally? was there you... Oh, gosh, of course. You're in awe. Exactly. That's like, yeah, of course, it was Linford. But my, I remember it being, I expect him to be a certain way. And he wasn't. I had a view of everyone that's famous and good or really good at something had to be an idiot. I don't know where it come from, but I had a kind of vision, especially with sprinters that I had, and it wasn't the case. So that took me back straight away. I was just taken aback of how actually nice and supportive he was and knowledgeable that he was as well. And technically, what did you learn from him? Technically, not much at that age, because he was 13 when we had the first encounter, myself, him and Darren Campbell, who we all went on to train with. And again, one of the friends I've had for 30 years from the sport. Technically wise in terms of sport, nothing at that age, nothing. More words, 13, 14, and how powerful they are at that age when you're that informative and you expect somebody to be one way and they're not. You kind of remember that even more. So te- nothing, because we had to go full circle before he started coaching me. It was 1998. So in 98? Yeah. Did, what did you learn from him then? So from 98 to 99, it was funny because when you say you were coached by Linford, people, Linford and Ron Rodden, because Ron Rodden was Linford's coach and Ron Rodden made Linford run fast and win all the titles and Ron coached us. Ron and Linford coached us. But that's not interesting because no one knows who Ron Rodden is and they don't care. It's Linford. Do you know what I mean? It's Linford's name that makes well, it Who was exciting. the greater influence on you? Both of them because they were totally, diff- totally different and totally different reasons why. Linford had been there and done it. So you could go to Linford having been at this time obviously now Olympic and world champion and he could give you the psychological side. Although I did ask him before my Olympic 400 metre final, I'm a bit nervous, how do I run this? And he did say, why are you asking me? I ran 100. <laughs> so that, that's one insight. Thanks for coming. 
I'm actually looking at the, you know, 100, 112,000 people here, mate. I'm looking at the environment. So we get on so well, you can imagine that was just pure banter conversation. I'm like, you know what, don't worry about it. <laughs> he just went, don't cock it up. That was his words of advice before I went to the Olympic final. Don't cock it up. Thanks for coming. So he 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 had the kind of influence of the athletic respect side because of who he was and that kind of father figure type role. He was very well respected and he was flipping good. But then Ron Rodden, who Ron, who still coaches now in West London, won't say boo to a ghost, little white man with his silver hair and his pot belly wandering around the track, would set out 90% of the sessions that Linford would tweak. So you had the knowledge of somebody like Ron sprinkled on top with the experience and knowledge, developing knowledge of Linford as well, because he fell into coaching and plan on coaching. If you said Linford Chris is going to be a coach, you're like, hell no, no chance. He hasn't got the patience for that. Like most coaches, he fell into it. So those two ingredients combined were very, very productive, very, very successful, but also fantastically entertaining and a wonderful relationship, but really good. And, and I, they, they balanced each other out really, really well. Let's go back to the night of your life. 2000 Olympics, Cathy mm-hmm. Friedman, 400 metres. What happened? Um, uh, great. What happened in those? <laughs> How soon did you know you were going to win a medal? I thought I could win it. You could beat her? Yeah, definitely. 100%. And I don't abide by or live by the rule of, you know, um, well, that's just non-realistic. That's unrealistic. What you know, my gold is my silver, and all these other things. I wasn't going for silver. I wasn't going for bronze. I was going to win it, and I genuinely believed I've, I've got a chance here. I've been racing Kathy Freeman since juniors, so she'd come over and do internationals here in the UK in Horsham and all these other places. So we've known each other since. Again, we were 16, 17 years old. She was a short sprinter and moved up to 400. So again, aware of each other and very respectful of each other. But yeah, the Olympic final was was. It was 49 seconds of, I've got a chance here and I've got one chance to do this. And that's the exact last thing I said to myself as I went into the blocks. Luckily, the camera went off I was in lane three. Luckily, they go down the lanes, don't they? And they went to that one, you see the wave and all that kind of stuff. They came to lane three and I waved down the camera lens, gave it a smile. Because I was good to go. I was confident. I was confident. I wasn't particularly nervous because I knew I had half a chance. And then just as the camera was going into the blocks, I kind of clapped my hands together and and read myself up and said something. But luckily, they came off the right time (laughs) because it wasn't very good language. Come on! (laughs) Something like that. But I was ready. I was, I, was, I was good to go and I genuinely thought I could win it. There's about 150 to go. Kavala and Miria right up. It's going to be a big finish. Into the slate, Graham leads. Freeman runs up to her. Miri inside. Kathy lifting. Goes up to Graham. Takes the lead. Looks a winner. Draws away from Graham and Miri. This is a famous victory. A magnificent performance. What a legend. What a champion. I realised I'd got a medal when I look back upon the screen, because you're never sure in track and field, you see, because you don't want to look a prat, because you don't want to lean and dip and think you've won and then turn around and it comes up that you've come fourth, and you, oh, shame, that's embarrassing, so you wait. But no, we came into the home straight at 300 metres. Myself, Cathy Freeman and Lorraine Graham, the Jamaican who picked up the silver behind Cathy, were in a dead straight line at 300, and it was literally the case of whose wheels are going to fall off first. And mine flew off and flew into the infield at about 50 metres to go with Lactic. Lorraine held on and got the silver and Cathy just powered away. She's the best in the world at the time. She was, you know, she, she shouldn't have lost it and she didn't lose it. Um, but I ran my fastest ever time. And so when it flashed up, which seemed to take an age, on the big screen at the stadium, that the, the bronze was confirmed and it was my first time under 50 seconds and it was an Olympic bronze medal. 
And it's exactly what Cathy Cook had done in 1984, ran under 50 seconds for the first time and won a bronze, which I wanted to do. I said, a young child, I'm going to have a crack at that. I'm going to do that. So there's many similarities, but it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And when you got your medal, did you think this is the first of many medals I'm going to get? This is just the start? Oh, definitely. Definitely. My, that, Sydney 2000 was my first full year of 400 metre running. It was the beginning. It was the next chapter of my athletics career. And myself and Linford had, he says debate, I say argue, into the le- years leading up to Sydney about moving from the short sprints to the longer sprint mm. because I've got wonderful speed endurance. But he wasn't, he didn't let me change for about a year, a couple of years. So we had this debate and then he finally let me change events and it worked wonderfully well. So many people then say, well, you should have argued and you should have changed events sooner and you'd have had more success. But no, it wasn't the right time. I was good to go. And the next year I was the fastest woman in the world and I finished the 2001 season as the fastest 400 metre runner in the world, quicker than I'd ran in Sydney. I was just getting going. And then the injuries came back and and whacked me between the eyes and I never got back, never got back from that. So, yeah, very, very frustrating, beyond belief. (laughs) Let's go into this dark chapter of your life Mm -hmm. when you realise that injuries are going to curtail your career. Mm. And I know this takes you into a very dark place and I think it's worthwhile just looking Mm -hmm. at this and asking you what it was like having to deal with the fact that your time as an elite sports person had come to an end. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. And you know I'm going to get upset because I got upset when we spoke about this the other day. See, I'm going again. Oh, there's there's nothing worse. Even now. No, I'm... Oh, see. What are you feeling right now? It's horrible because it's... Um, God, any anytime anyone asks me... God, they, they aired a programme I did filmed recently. And every time anyone... It was only on the other day... And it had me, someone asked me, oh, you had a few injury problems, didn't you? Oh, no, don't take me back to the injuries. And I got upset again because it's, you know what it is, Gary? It's that level of unfinished business that's topped with frustration. Which is the main emotion that's coming up right yeah. now. Yeah. Oh, it's horrible for me because... Just what's the main emotion? It is frustration. Frustration, disappointment, um, anger. The whole, I know what I could have done in terms of running and over the 400 metres. I know what I could have done. And people in the sport know what I could have done. Those that know athletics, you're on 49.7 in your first year of 400 metre running. You're on 49.5 the next year. You're on course for a world championships. And nobody laughs and goes, yeah, whatever, in the sport. If I then say, I know I could have run 49 flat over the 400 metres. I know I could. I was on course to run that. And you get injured and you get something gets thrown in your path that derails you. It is the most frustrating thing. If I didn't run, I didn't win medals. If I didn't run, I didn't earn money. A full-time athlete, six days a week, five hours a day, just getting my teeth into a new event, which I was at home at and learnt very quickly. It's horrible because then you're totally and utterly, you just feel useless. You lose a massive part of your identity when you're injured because you're not doing what you're supposed to be. And you're seeing other people do things that, and they're not doing it as well as you. They're not running as fast as you. And you're there hobbling around from one operation to another on crutches and rehabbing with your boring, flipping exercises when the rest of your teammates, like in my case, Darren Campbell, Jamie Bosch, Coach Linford, are doing proper sessions. I'm flapping around at the side doing these boring rehab things. 
you get into a place that's really dark. You do. And, it, and it's a horrible, horrible place. But when people ask me about that, the reason why I don't do it, just the instant reaction is that I, I do get upset is frustration. Genuinely, it's what I, what I could have achieved and what I didn't because my body decided it wasn't going to let me, which in my, it's funny to say is out of my control. It's my body, but I'm not in control of that because I wasn't training like an idiot. I wasn't pulling tractors down the road at 14 years old and lifting blooming weights every day. Three times a week on the track at 13, three times a week on track sessions before the Olympics at 25, 26. That's not overtraining. That's just, some athletes are just unlucky. And I think I was just really unlucky. But then balanced with grateful for what I did. Does that make sense? It's funny, isn't it? Well, I'm just picking yeah. up the, how strong the emotion is that, that it brings tears to your eyes. And I think it's really important to recognise mm. what that does to you. And I just wonder why, why it, it strikes me it's buried very deep inside you, yet you've never gone into therapy. Your decision uh, to stop taking antidepressants very quickly after you prescribe them, is, is, you've made very clear. It's almost as if to say, I'm burying that down there, mate, and nobody's ever going to see it again. But it keeps popping up. Yeah, it keeps popping up if asked, like most things if I have issues with in my life of stuff. If not asked, happy days. Do you know what I mean? They're still there. Don't back, that's what I'm saying. But you don't but people we like that though, aren't we, as people? You know, you kind of just get on with life and you put things into a box and you put the lid on it. And then it's only when that box is opened or something's reawakened you think, Oh yeah, and then you then you take yourself there and you remember it. But then you just like you say, you put it back in a box and move on. Of course they're still there. You know, someone only has to mention that to me, like you have, and I will get upset. And then, yeah, I was put on antidepressants for a while because they were, and I was in a, you ask any sports person, you know this guy, I was in a horrible place. Mm. But it was like, no, what are you doing? Jesus, webcat, you, you're a streeter, you can get back from this. And then, for me, an injury was an opportunity. I always saw an injury as an opportunity for me to fight my way back and show people and then flip those two fingers up again. That's what drove me. It was always an opportunity for me. But, um, yeah, but the opportunity, I decided one day I just had enough. Welcome back to On the Sporting Couch. I'm Gary Bloom, a psychotherapist, and with me in the studio is former Olympic sprinter, now TV presenter, Catherine Merry. As one door closes, another one opens. And you said to me on the telephone when we had a long chat, that your injuries allowed a new career to arrive at your door. So so with all the sadness, which I recognise, it also brings the seeds of something new. Definitely, definitely. And I can make a yeah. strong argument that that new career as a TV presenter, commentator, front person, would never have happened or would have taken a lot much longer to happen without the injuries. Without the injuries and without an Olympic medal. See, they do. It is. I, 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 I'm very appreciative. That's when people say, no, but you had a great career. Yeah, I did. But, uh, but our industry and our world doesn't work like that. Do you know what I mean? If you get an individual Olympic medal in a sprint event, you, you're kind of, you, you, one, you're doing really well, which obviously I would say. <laughs> but it's, you're elevated into a different level. The kudos that that brings, the opportunities that that brings. I'm fully aware that's what I was saying before. Everything I've done post-Sydney and in terms of the broadcasting was because I ran 49.72 seconds at 8 o'clock on the 25th of September in the year 2000. So what you're saying if is I if you finished fourth, 
None of that would have I know the lady, the lovely lady that finished fourth. My teammate, Donna Fraser, and Donna's doing wonderful things within athletics and sport in terms of diversity. She might not have wanted to do broadcasting or stuff like that anyway, and she's doing very well for herself. In my situation, I wouldn't have been on the, the, the BBC couch for the Commonwealth Games when injured in 2002 if I hadn't won a medal at the Olympics in one of the biggest, most iconic races ever, which it is because it was the 400-metre final. Um, with Cathy Freeman and all the shebang that went with that. Fully aware of that and grateful for that as well. That's the thing. That's the balance you see. You have frustration, but you're grateful for that one time. But yeah, it did open a door. It did, it did open a door because I started doing broadcasting off the back of that. Otherwise, I'd have been an Olympic finalist that was quite good when I was young. And if I hadn't been injured, oh, she might have done quite well. It, it, and you know that. Everyone knows that. Everyone's fully aware of the, the credibility and the doors that open. So what drives your broadcasting career? For many sports people, the whole thing that drives them to be a sports person is a desire to be recognised in some shape or form. And very many people who then go from a sporting world to a broadcasting world take that with them. Is that you? No, I'm not, I'm not bothered about being in front of a camera, having my face on a TV screen, being in vision. Um, Genuinely, I'm not. I just, I, my my desire and my love for my sport never, n never fades. It will never fade. I'm very defensive of my sport, especially at the moment when everybody thinks that all athletes are cheats, which they're not. Um, I'm very passionate about it. I'm driven by just being involved in the sport that I love. And again, being grateful for being involved in whatever role that is. I'm just as comfortable in front of a camera hosting Diamond League or athletic events here or in America or and obviously being in a commentary box where I'm not seen. I'm not bothered about being famous or bothered about being seen. I'm bothered about adding to my sport in an insightful way that makes people enjoy it and makes people potentially want to do it if you're a certain age of a young athlete. Do you know what I mean? I just love my sport. It just encapsulates my everyday life. It's what I am and it's what I know. And to be getting paid now to talk about it and get insight into it, it's fantastic for me. It's, it's a dream to be able to do that and call it work. <laughs> I'm going to show you another red rag now. Uh -huh. We might get you crossed. Sport is a meritocracy. A stopwatch doesn't lie. The fastest wins, the fastest goes to the top. But in TV broadcasting, the dice are sometimes not always fair. They don't roll the right way. And that especially for women making their way in broadcasting. And that's something you feel very, very strongly about, isn't it? It is, definitely. I'm very much, um, into, like you say, with the athletic analogy. Um, let's just pretend for one moment that everybody in the world's clean, which they're not because people cheat. But let's just say you run a race, the fastest person wins, as you say, Gary. The second person gets the silver and then the person gets the bronze. Very simple, <laughs> very straightforward. You're either the fastest or you're not. And you're right, in broadcasting, it isn't the same. It isn't the same. Not the best people get the jobs, but they get them for whatever reason, whether it's because their medal's better than yours, whether it's because they've been on other programmes, whether it's because they were the best man at the producer's wedding or somebody's godson or whatever, all that shebang that goes with it. It, it, isn't, it, is, it, it isn't the same as the world that I'm used to. Very frustrating. Very, very frustrating for me. Um, but not surprisingly, that's what kind of then gets internalised and continues to make me work extremely hard at what I do. Do I feel I've had to work harder than a lot of other people to get the opportunities that so far I have? Yes, because I'm coming from a sports person's background 
And it took me a long time. I'm 12 years retired and it's taken me a long time to be accepted as a, in my opinion, as a credible broadcaster who's actually really quite good at the different jobs she does rather than Olympic medalist. If someone says to me, you used to run, didn't you? I love that because it means I've crossed that line. Yeah, I did. I used to do a bit. But and then I'm being recognised for something different and I've had to work hard for that. And I still feel that um, females have to work far too hard for those opportunities. I really do. And it's not me banging my drum and all that kind of stuff. I'm not, I'm not like that. I just go with whatever's the best person for the job or the best production that you can get out of something. I'm very fair when I work. I like to think when people work with me, I share the love because you want the output to be the best it can possibly be. But broadcasting doesn't work like that. And that's quite alien to me. I don't like it. I love what I do. Not particularly a massive fan of the industry. But especially in the last 12 months, there has been a change, a sea change of attitude around sexism in broadcasting. And women are beginning to become more vocal about how people get jobs. And if it's an inappropriate behaviour which has landed somebody a job, women are now beginning to say, it's not for me. Yeah, definitely. I think there's there's a whole so many different caveats, isn't there, in, in terms of the, in terms of the the broadcasting world. Very aware from a young age, maybe because of the 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 um, attention, shall we say, or the bullying that I had, that you have to potentially look a certain way and you have to tick a box. That's, do you know what I mean? And we talk about that in our industry a lot, don't we? It's about box ticking. I know sometimes I haven't got roles and jobs because they've already got somebody that ticks a box from from my point of view. What box do you tick? I like to think I tick the very good bloody broadcasting box, if I'm being honest. <laughs> but I, I do. And that's all I ever want. When people say to me, you're a great female commentator. No, I'm a blooming commentator. I'm just a good commentator. I don't care. If you're good, you're good. If you're rubbish, you're rubbish. If you can do better, you can do better, which I'm always open to. I want to be the best I can possibly be. But is that you sticking your fingers up to the world again? To a degree, it is. And I, and I, and I do work hard for that because I hate being called a good female commentator. I'm a good commentator. But I happen to be a woman. And if that then ticks the boxes in terms of the demographic that a production company or an output or they, or they want for their output, then happy days. Do you know what I mean? If you're not good enough for the job, you shouldn't get it. But I'm fully aware, because obviously I'm not stupid, of the way things have gone, especially the last four or five years. It's changed massively. And it's op- opened opportunities that people are now deserving to get whether able-bodied or disabled, whether a woman or a man, whether they're black or they're white, we're getting a lot more opportunities for everybody if they're good enough. It's still not quite right because there's still a lot of people that get work and stuff that that isn't to the standard that I think or many other people think it should be for different reasons. But it's it's, it's getting better and it has been a lot, a real momentum in the last 12 months or so and quite rightly so. What drives you? Come on. To be the best that I can possibly be, and for everybody that said, so I'm going to go again, everybody that said it's not going to be the case, it's like, get lost. Do you know what I mean? That is, that is the drive. Who's told you to get lost? Uh, well, quite a few people over the years, to be honest. <laughs> Mostly unjustified, in my opinion. No, but, you know, just those general people, whether you can think back of people that bullied you or said things at school. Isn't it funny as people how you remember... And you can remember the names. Like, we must use the names of my children. And then my husband's like, not having that one because he was an idiot at school or, or he was horrible too. Do you know what I mean? Isn't it funny? You know, not having them. They were an absolute idiot when I was 10. But the, over the years, we've all had it as people. And, and 
and you do remember them and you are driven by them and people are lies if they say they aren't. And I'm open to say, yes, I am driven by those. I am driven by the non-acceptance of, of my family in, in areas. I am driven by the people that thought it was funny that, to, to bully me in the athletic team because I was better than them. And now I'm driven to, to everything I do. I, I, I do 100%. I hate the term 110 It's not possible. 100%. And it is through the pure desire of being flipping good at, at what I do and therefore looking for, of course some level of acceptance. Catherine, we're coming to the end of our broadcast. Um, what would you say to anybody who's now in a relationship and they're really struggling with how they tell their mums and dads, how do they square it with themselves? What, what message would you give to them? Being yourself is, is something that's really important to me. I genuinely believe that you can't change inherently the person that you are. You can probably tell me different, Karen. I genuinely believe that you can't. You are what you are. And you make the decisions that you make because obviously you want to. Every situation is so different though, isn't it? It has very different connotations depending on those individual circumstances. But it's being yourself and being brave enough to be yourself and hoping then that the people that are involved in the decision that don't particularly like it or aren't accepting of it will come, in my point of view, to their senses and it will therefore mean at some point, six months, two years, ten years down the line, there may be a chance that that can be rekindled. If you leave no stone unturned and do everything that you possibly can to make something the way you want it and it doesn't happen, then there's nothing else you can do. You have to then just move on and say, that's the way you are, that's a real shame, and just go on and do your thing. You just have to go on and do your thing. You have to be yourself above anything else in this world. You can't lie your way through life. It's impossible. Catherine Mary, many thanks for joining me on The Sporting Cage. You've been listening to On The Sporting Couch, a programme that's attempted to lift the lid on mental health issues in sport. I'm Gary Bloom, a psychotherapist, counsellor and sports broadcaster, and my guest has been former Olympic sprinter and now TV presenter, Catherine Merry. I hope the programme will have encouraged anyone who has or knows anyone who's had mental health issues to come forward and get help. And there are some useful links on the TalkSport website if you have a look at talksport.com forward slash sporting couch. I'm Gary Bloom and please remember there's no such thing as good health without good mental health. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.